I always say, if you cut yourself within a couple of weeks, the repair is perfect and you go back to normal. How is it possible that inside of the body we don't have any of this, right? So we just develop outside the uh, repair mechanism, but intra inside of the organism, we don't, we, we do nothing about insulin resistance, uh, liver, fatty liver, um, you know, inflammation. There is no way, right? So the, the, the body um, has these repair mechanisms. Uh, we just need to learn how to, how to trigger them and trigger them in a way that that can uh, result in uh, in uh, you know repair and regeneration and and we believe also rejuvenation. This is episode number one hundred and twelve with Dr. Walter Longo. Welcome to Pursuing Health. I'm Julie Fouché, family medicine resident and former CrossFit Games athlete. Here, I bring to you information and inspiration from experts and everyday individuals for how to use lifestyle to maximize health. Thank you so much for joining me. Now let's get started with this week's episode. Hey there, welcome back to Pursuing Health. In this episode, I had the pleasure of sitting down with one of the world's leading researchers of longevity, Dr. Walter Longo. A little bit about Dr. Longo. He is a professor of gerontology and biological sciences and the director of the Longevity Institute at the University of Southern California. He is also the senior group leader of the IFOM Cancer Institute in Milan, Italy. His studies focus on the fundamental mechanisms of aging, and they range from molecular studies in simple organisms in mice, all the way up to the translation of these findings to humans in large epidemiological studies and clinical trials. After nearly 25 years of research along pioneering scientists in longevity, Dr. Longo has applied his extensive knowledge on aging, genetics, nutrition, and disease to develop the longevity diet. He believes that by following a low-protein, pescatarian eating plan, combined with periods of a fasting-mimicking diet, one can improve their cellular rejuvenation, increase their resistance to metabolic disorders such as diabetes, autoimmune diseases, cancer, and neurodegenerative diseases, as well as extend their healthy lifespan. I recently had the pleasure of catching up with Dr. Longo to learn more about the five pillars that guide his longevity research and how his research has led him to believe that the key to increasing your youth span lies in making long-term, sustainable changes to your nutrition. One of the things I love about Dr. Longo's approach is that he's taking the most up-to-date research findings and making them accessible to patients and the general population through things like his book, The Longevity Diet, as well as the Prolon Fasting Mimicking Diet. However, he doesn't collect a penny from either of these efforts and 100% of royalties from his book and shares from his company go straight back to supporting high quality nutrition research around the world through the Create Cures Foundation. Before we get started with this episode, I have a few quick reminders. First, this episode is produced by CrossFit Beyond the Whiteboard, the best workout tracking in the biz and the one I've been using since 2009. You can learn more at beyondthewhiteboard.com. If you're enjoying the podcast, please head over to iTunes to subscribe and consider giving it a rating. I'm also always looking for inspiring stories to share. So if you or someone you know has used lifestyle to overcome a serious health challenge, please send your story to me at info at juliefouché.com. Finally, please remember that although I am now officially a doctor, this podcast is meant to share the experiences of individuals and does not provide medical advice. So with that, we'll get started with episode number 112 of Pursuing Health featuring Dr. Walter Longo. Welcome to Pursuing Health. I'm very excited to be here with Dr. Walter Longo, who is one of the world expert researchers in longevity. So thank you so much for joining me. Sure. Thanks for having me. Um, I was reading a bit about your background, and it sounds like you have a very interesting background that in some ways influenced you towards your research in this field. So I thought maybe we could start there and maybe tell us a little bit about um, what it was like growing up in Italy and then what brought you to the States. Yeah, so I was lucky enough to grow up in, in two places, uh, maybe 50-50 between southern Italy in some of the areas that now by chance turn out to be some of the longest lived in the world. Uh, there are small places that are not, uh, people always, when they think about Italy, Sardinia, or Calabria, these long lived places, they think of big areas. They're in fact small towns, and these small towns happen to have record longevity, some of the longest uh, uh, lived people in the world. 
And, uh, and then there was the Calabria in a particular small town called Molocchio. Uh, and then um, Liguria, where Genova is, and you know, it's known for the Cinque Terre and, and that area around Genova. But it's really one of the areas of the world that has the highest over 65 population. And also is one of the areas of the world that has always had a pescatarian diet. And so a fish plus vegan diet um, that, is, that is to this day normal for people. This is what they eat. And not too many places in the world that have this, this specific diet just by uh, histor historically um, having had that, uh, that type of selection. And uh, yeah, so then, then I think I, I was lucky to, to have that, uh, that background. Uh, and then uh, when I moved, when I was 16, I moved to Chicago. And so there was, uh, at least at the time, uh, this was like mid 80s. Mm -hmm. um, and so the Chicago uh, represented like a really bad, uh, uh, well, there was certainly a really bad diet back then. And now I guess they're still not so good. But <laughs> particularly bad uh, back back then okay. and okay. Um, and then from Chicago a few years later I moved to Texas and that I think I, I went from bad to worse <laughs> and, and then ended up uh, in California in the laboratory of Roy Walford who was the world at the time the world leading place a uh, leading uh, scientist for longevity and nutrition so so I went uh, you know I guess from traditionally very 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 good mm -hmm. to very bad in Chicago, even worse in the Tex-Mex uh, uh, diet in, in, in Dallas. But then to the California, like this really ideal longevity type diets that Walford was working on. Uh, yeah, so that, that I think really shaped uh, uh, the, the way that I started thinking, uh, not just about science, but it was always science plus tradition. Uh, and, and this really shaped everything we do. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think you talk a bit in your book just about noticing changes in the health, maybe, I don't know if yourself, but of some of your relatives after they had moved to Chicago and their diet had changed from their traditional diet. Um, what were some of the things that you observed at that time? Yeah, a couple of things were uh, diabetes and cardiovascular disease. And, and, uh, and so uh, most of my relatives were 100% uh, Italian, you know, they mm -hmm. genetically, they just came from the same place. And I started seeing them uh, develop uh, all these problems um, that I really didn't see in the in my Italian family. Um, and so yeah, that was uh, already uh, very telling, because uh, the only real difference that I could see and it was a huge difference, mm. the diet and everything else. It wasn't so, so much different. Mm -hmm. My relatives in Chicago were fairly active, you know, and so they didn't have necessarily sedentary jobs, but they were still struggling. And uh, uh, the diet was, was uh, most likely um, what, what made that difference. Okay. So you had some of those observations. And then at what point did you decide that, this was what you wanted to do. You wanted to do research on longevity. Uh, I always wanted to do research on longevity. I think uh, um, since early, early on. And so I switched to uh, um, my second, I, I studied music, just performance actually in Texas at my first year of college. Mm -hmm. And then the second year I moved to biochemistry department. And uh, from the beginning, the, it wasn't, I studied biochemistry. Then at some point I said, I want to study aging. It, my decision was uh, uh, I want to study aging, and then I, I thought uh, as a you know 18 year old, uh, how do you do that? And I thought, well, if you study chemistry and you study biology, uh, and therefore biochemistry, mm -hmm. you probably can't go wrong, you know. And that was a very good decision, by the way. I mean, <laughs> that I was 18, you know, just don't go into biology and don't go into chemistry. Uh, try to get uh, you know really what's pretty much a double major of, of biology and chemistry, the biochemistry. And yeah, so it was always uh, my interest. I, I always thought there was like nothing more uh, that would make me more enthusiastic than, mm -hmm. uh, uh, than to study um, uh, aging. And, uh, and I think from early on, I was surprised that people, um, I mean, didn't see A, there was like an incredible scientific challenge um, this is mystery. Everybody's always been interested, you know, how to, why we age and die. And then I thought, 
this is also it's got to be very fundamental for for diseases you know for mm -hmm. medicine mm -hmm. and um yeah so then that that's what made me very very sure that that's all i wanted to do and, and that's all i've ever done amazing amazing to have that insight so early on in your career i think many people it takes them much longer to figure out what what it is they want to do um so then can you talk a little bit about what it was like in the early years you know after an undergraduate, and then I think you were able to work with, like you said, some of the world experts early in your career. Um, what was that time like um, learning from them and kind of developing the direction that your research would take later on? Yeah, so I, um, Los Angeles at the time was the, the mecca uh, and in, in the aging uh, research, and I don't know why, but uh, certainly two of the, the the pillars of, of uh, the pioneers of longevity were here, Roy Walford and, and Caleb Finch, who, by the way, is next door to me still to this day. <laughs> He's almost 80 years old. Wow. And, um, uh, yeah, so I think that I came and I visit, visited both labs, and then eventually I decided to uh, to join the, the Walford lab uh, and uh, for my PhD studies, and eventually I, I joined the Finch lab for my postdoctoral studies. Uh. Um, so yeah, so this was was the really uh, an incredible place, and I was lucky enough when I joined the the Walford lab to uh, he was in, at the time he was in Biosphere Two, was an area mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. Arizona that um, where they had done the first uh, uh, color restriction experiment, and so I was lucky to uh, uh, to uh, you know be there when they exited Biosphere Two. Um, and so that was a great experience. And so this is basically uh, the first human uh, experiment on color restriction, meaning that they had gone into this place in, in the middle of Arizona and they uh, stayed in there for two years and they stayed in there while they were uh, color restricted. So they ate wow. about 30% uh, less than normal. And, uh, and, and, and the results are, are, were really extraordinary. Uh, both, uh, the, I always talk about this, both the bad results and the good results, right? Mm -hmm. So the, that experiment uh, that they did that really really showed how good color restriction is and how bad it is uh, all in one study. Mm -hmm. What were some of the good things and then the bad things that you learned from that? Well, the good was that if you look at the results, um, you will say medicine is getting it all wrong, you know, mm -hmm. so that you could see that it completely change fasting glucose, it completely change cholesterol, triglyceride, it completely change blood pressure. Uh, everything was revolutionized. So, mm -hmm. so you know, if a cardiologist will see that, um, if you saw those changes, right, and you, and you were a doctor, you would say, what kind of medicine are you taking? You know, and you say, right. before, and just a couple months into Biosphere 2, into this color restriction, they would think, you just have an incredible cocktail of drugs that are doing everything right. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. uh, and you know, of course, it was not a single drug. It was all the type of food and the quantity of the food that they were eating. So they were, you know, very much on a, on a vegan-like uh, diet, but also the quantities were very low. So, yeah, so I think it revolutionized their, their risk for, for diseases. Uh, at the same time, if you look at them, you will say, you're not going to do very well. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so and that was really the the incredible uh, part about this study that it, it just visualized the solution and the problem uh, in just one, one especially Walford, because Walford was the oldest uh, in he, he was close to 70 years of age when he went to Biosphere 2. So I think that did most damage to him, you know, being mm. this pushed to the limit mm -hmm. and being pushed to a, almost an anorexic-like state. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so, yeah, so I think that uh, that picture really worth a, a, a billion words in that case um, was really uh, a, a great way to start my PhD and, um, and uh, you know, and to shape the next, uh, you know, 25 years. Well, amazing that, you know, that just the sacrifice that they made to do that research on themselves, but also... Interesting. So that your research advisor was actually in this biosphere too while you were doing your research. That must have added a little bit of challenge as well. Yeah, I mean, uh, it had a uh, challenge, but uh, but I think that um, 
it really also shaped my, um, you know, the way of, of doing things. I really like Walford's style mm-hmm. of, yes, we're doing research, but here we are, um, you know, my own, myself, yeah. in a biosphere too, for two years. He was really, uh, you know, uh, doing experiments on himself. On himself. And um, yeah, so that I think was, uh, uh, was great for me. Uh, very different style from, from that of my future mentors, mm-hmm. but uh, one style that I really uh, adopted probably, uh, you know, a lot and, and really shaped my, uh, my career. That's amazing. Um, so, and I want to come back to that too later when we talk about some of your fasting research and how that influenced your direction. But um, you've also really taken an approach of, you know, where often in medicine we're focused on specific diseases or um, like you've mentioned before, longevity in terms of the years of our life, but you've really taken a focus on looking at health. And I think you've termed it um, juventology. We're looking at what is the science of what makes us healthy and vibrant, even as we age. And what I'm curious, what influenced you to take that approach or look at your research through that lens? Yeah. So I think that I mean, so my colleagues, the people that study aging now, lots of us talk about health span, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, what's the point of living to 100 if, if starting at age 55, you're sick? Right. And okay. so there is the concept of health span. Uh, I, I, I thought that I wanted to add something called youth span. And, you know, to gerontology and health span, mm-hmm. I wanted to add youth span and juventology. Mm-hmm. And the mm-hmm. idea was... Um, is something very different. So how long can we keep somebody young for? Right? So young in the sense of, you know, being able to play sports at a somewhat competitive level, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that's where juventology com- comes in uh, from. And I think it's, uh, it's very important that we focus on both because really I talk about longevity programs. And so uh, in the longevity program, uh, you know, so let's say there is a lot of, lot of talk about, say, functional food or, or drugs. Or, and the problem that I have with this whole idea of, let's say, I give you a drug for a long time and this is going to make you healthier, longer lived, or I give you a functional food and it's going to make you... The problem I have with that is that sort of not looking at the sophistication of, of the longevity problem. So, so a mouse mm-hmm. lives for two and a half years. And, uh, and that mouse has a program that is much more sophisticated from the one of a fruit fly that lives for 60 days or, or so. So then I always thought uh, what we really need to focus on is on the uh, understanding how do you go from 60 days program to two and a half year program to an 80 year program for humans. And so if we can understand how that program works, but particularly if we can understand the um, not pushing the program, you know, the reprogramming is going to happen. It's just a matter of time. It might take, you know, 500 years, a thousand years, I don't know, but it's going to take a long time. But the, uh, the interesting thing is what if there are multiple programs, right? And for yeast, for example, some of my, uh, eventually I left the Walford lab because I wanted to understand the molecular biology of aging, right? Mm-hmm. And in yeast, there are three preset programs. One, that it lasts about five days, where yeast live for five days. Then there's something called stationary phase, they live about 15, 17 days. And then there's something called spore state, and they live for years, right? Huh. So huh. I always thought, from the beginning, I, I looked at this and say, that's a hundredfold difference in life, right? A hundredfold. Yeah. So, and here we are talking about vitamin C, right? And, and so I said, you know, this is what I want to figure out. You know, how do you go from five-day to 500-day lifespan uh, just by changing program, and the program has been, um, I call it, you know, three billion years of research and development, meaning like this has been developing for billions of years. Mm-hmm. That's how sophisticated it is, right? So I thought that's what we want to figure out. Let's figure out how do you go from program A to program B to program C, and once we can figure out a switch, now we can have tremendous effects on, on certainly on, you know, these 20, 30 years of sick lifespan. I mean, that, that, I think we're already there, um, but eventually uh, we can do even better than that. Yeah, that's amazing. And I, I love the very comprehensive approach that you take with your research in um, looking at this from so many different angles and bringing that all together to make it, um, to try to understand it and make it practical for 
the layperson to understand as well. Um, and in your book, you talk about five different pillars of longevity that are sort of different ways that you study this. Can you outline those for us and why they're each important to get a, a really comprehensive understanding? Yeah, so I, I uh, of course, uh, especially when you start talking about nutrition, everybody says, oh, you know, here's another book and another opinion on nutrition. Right. Really, I waited and waited and waited for 25 years before writing the book because I, I understood that the pillars were so important. So, you know, pillar one, of course, was the reason for my switch from the Walford lab to the biochemistry department. And, and it was, you have to understand the fundamentals. If you don't understand how organism work, then you are going to be lost from the beginning, right? So it was important to understand the genes, identify the genes that control longevity. So I told you this lifespan of five days, 17 days, and then two years. Well, we, my uh, first effort was to identify some of the most important genes that extend lifespan. So we identify two genes that together, together with starvation will make yeast live 10 times longer, right? So that's, that's a pillar of basic research focus on longevity. Then you have to go to epidemiology. You have to say, well, okay, you know, this, this pillar shows these genes are important, show that the protein pathway is important, for example. Uh, what about people that eat lots of protein? Are they doing worse? Mm -hmm. and, you know, and that's, that's what you do. Then you start looking for, uh, you know, how do people that eat lots of protein compare to the ones that eat low protein to the ones that eat no protein, right? Mm -hmm. Well, it turns out that if you eat too much protein, you don't do very well. If you eat low protein, you do very well. If you eat no protein, you do very badly, right? Mm -hmm. So... Uh, is you're starting to see like this a common denominator, these two pillars matching, mm -hmm. and then you have to move for, forward and say, well, okay, okay, what about clinical studies? You know, if I uh, do a clinical study, if I put lots of people on a high protein diet, and you know, 50 people and 50 people on a low protein diet, what do I see? You know? And in a randomized controlled clinical study, it's a gold standard, and it's important because you want to have that kind of like rigorous comparison, right? Mm -hmm. uh, if blinded, even better. If placebo controlled, even better. Not necessary, but certainly. And so that's, that's pillar number three. And then um, I, I think that, you know, pillar number four is the centenarians is also very, very important. Why is that? Let's say, for example, the low-carb diet. Everybody now talks about low-carb diet. And, and you can say, well, first of all, if you look at basic research, uh, it low carb is not good. If you look at uh, epidemiological research, low carb is not good. If you look at clinical research, low carb can be quite good, right? Mm -hmm. So lots of clinical studies say, you know, low carb diet after eight weeks or whatever, you do there, you lose weight, you, you lose your lower cholesterol, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but then you say, well, what if I look at centenarians, you know, some of the longest people in the world, do they have low, low carb diets? And you really don't see that almost in, in any of the, like certainly the record longevity groups, you know, that mm -hmm. doesn't mean that there couldn't be somebody around the world that has a low carb diet and, and is, you know, a population that is low carb diet and lives particularly long, but it's not common at all, right? So, um, so that's when uh, you, even if you believe that the low carb will be good, you say, why is it that I don't see the, the people living to 100, 110, or longer having low carb diets, mm -hmm. uh, maybe it's not so good. So that's pillar number four. And pillar number five is complex systems um, and uh, or systems that are complex. I don't want to say complex systems anymore because a complex system refers to something. There's a scientific uh, terminology for a complex system, which is usually system that you don't understand, like the brain is a complex system. Uh, but I mean, systems that are complex are very important because um, you know you, I think of cars and planes. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and, and make, um, you know, sometimes you want to simplify, simplify uh, the biological system even further uh, to, into a, a machine that you actually built, like a plane, mm -hmm. and, and that allows you to, to make some uh, conclusions about, uh, for example, I always say, you know, uh, should you run uh, or should you, as far as exercise is concerned, should you run or should you do biking or should you do something else? How much of it should you do? It should you do like a, what if somebody ran a hundred miles a week? Is mm -hmm. that good, right? If you look at the the other pillars, you don't really get a great uh, uh, answer. I mean, you get some answers, but not a great one. It's not very clear. Mm -hmm. uh, then you start looking at complex systems and say, well, if a, if a car has two hundred thousand miles on it would you buy, right? 
Most people say no, and say, well, why not? You know, they must have changed tires. They must have done lots of good things to it. Yeah, but you know, it's been worn out. That's what everybody will say, right? So this is where the fifth pillar come in. Is you know, we at some point we we also behave like like systems that are complex, and then you know you can learn a lot from 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 these machines because uh, uh, they're uh, they're made of uh, material that can be damaged. And they can, can uh, wear out, and and they can teach us about our own wearing out. I love it. So looking at sort of different different fields to inform what we're studying here, um, which often I think can provide some information. So so based on all of these different pillars, which you've accumulated, you said how many years of research? Over twenty five years. Over twenty five years. So. Obviously, being very patient and waiting until you have all this information before you're writing it up in a book and doing lots of hard work without um, kind of sharing it. I mean, sharing it, but not in that sort of public way of the book that you recently wrote. Um, what are sort of the key things that you've learned about the ideal diet that we should be following for longevity from all these different pillars? Yeah, yeah. So then, if if you put it all together, I think you come up with a pescatarian diet. Uh, why pescatarian, not vegan? Well, it, it, I mean, one of our jobs is to not just say, you know, I have a diet, and if I everybody came and, and, and lived in a, in a hospital or in Biosphere Two, mm -hmm. that would be great, right? It doesn't work like that. You're gonna go out there and you're gonna tell people, and they do what they do with it, right? So the, I think the vegan diet, uh, uh, lots of people may be malnourished on the vegan diet. Whether it's B12 or protein deficiency or some of the minerals, et cetera, they may, they may be malnourished. So pescatarian, there is really, uh, beside the ethical argument, there is really no, nothing that I've seen that will say that fish a couple of times a week uh, has got any negative effects. And mm -hmm. all I've seen, or the great majority of the studies, will suggest positive effects of, of, let's say, two meals a week that contain fish or seafood. Um, yeah, so that looks uh, like it's important. And then, um, you know, a low protein but sufficient protein diet, about 0.35 or so grams per pound of body weight. Uh, so if you weigh 100 pounds, it'd be 35 grams of proteins. Mm -hmm. If you weigh 200 pounds, it'd be maybe not quite twice as much because, you know, usually people that weigh 200 pounds may have high fat uh, percentage composition. Uh, so, you know, it might be 60 grams per, you know, 200 pound person. And uh, uh, then um, the uh, uh, you know uh, low uh, high carb about 60 30 10 seems to be the ideal. Uh, if you look at meta analysis and you look at it, put it all together, mm -hmm. it's just pretty consistent actually. You know, uh, for example, recent meta analysis now shows that even a 80 percent carbohydrate diet is better than a low carbohydrate diet. You know, if you look at lifespan. So a 60 seems to be the ideal. So 60% carbs, 30% uh, fats, and 10% uh, of the calories coming from proteins. That seems to be ideal. Uh, where the most of the carbs should come, uh, if you can do it, or as much as you can do it, from you know vegetables, a little bit of from fruit, and then you know the rest of it can come from starches. Now, uh, you know there is lots of uh, research now about. Uh, gluten, about inflammatory components, about, mm -hmm. so yeah, for the people, some people, a small percentage of the people, and you could argue that some people argue that the percentage is much bigger than the small, mm -hmm. I say celiac disease, uh, but if you have, for people that have gastrointestinal issues, then you need to pay attention in a very different way from everybody else, right? Mm -hmm. the, the, the gluten could be a problem, lots of inflammatory components, so this diet that I just described may not be uh, as simple uh, or as straightforward to do as uh, as for everybody else. But for everybody else, this seems to be a good way to go. So lots of vegetables. So I talk about, uh, for example, eat more. I mean, uh, people always introduce me and say, he's gonna tell you eat less. Mm -hmm. And this is what my boss did, Walford. Uh, but I always say eat more. What does that mean? It means that the, the ideal dish would be, let's say 50 grams of pasta, um, and then you know 300 grams of uh, uh, chickpeas, and then another 200 grams of, of mixed vegetables, you know. So, so think about, you know, an ounce is what, uh, 28, 28 grams, right? Uh, so, so uh, you know, just for people that don't, mm -hmm. don't like grams. <laughs> and, uh, 
so the um, uh, that seems to be uh, ideal. And then I talk about 12 hours, you know, time-restricted feeding, eat within 12 hours a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, lots of people are now starting to go 16 hours of fasting, 18 hours of fasting. Doesn't seem like to, uh, to be such a good idea. Um, and uh, uh, why? Because you start seeing problems when you go to 16, 18 hours. You, you know, for example, people that skip breakfast do worse than anybody else. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and people that uh, go uh, 14, 16, 18 hours a day of fasting, they seem to have a gallstone formation that is higher and gallbladder operation that is much higher than everybody else. So stick with 12 hours. So if you have breakfast at 8 a.m. by 8 p.m., uh, you need to be done eating. Uh, if you like to have late dinners, then have late breakfast. You know, mm-hmm. so 9 a.m., 9 p.m., if that if it takes until 9 p.m. to be done, and then stop eating after that. And then um, you know, I always say, if you're overweight or tend to gain weight, forget the five or six meal a day ideas that we've been hearing for so long, and stick with two meals a day: breakfast plus lunch, or breakfast plus dinner, and then a, a healthy snack uh, as your third meal. Uh, you know, it could be nuts, it could be a salad, it could be you know anything that that. that um, it um, it's uh, healthy um, as a food. Um, then fats should be mostly um, you know unsaturated. The olive oil, the the, the salmon, um, the um, uh, the nuts, uh, walnuts, uh, hazelnut, uh, almonds. Yeah, so that's uh, that that seems to be the ideal diet. And then the last thing is the uh, periodic fasting mimicking diets. Mm-hmm. And so you know between let's say a couple of times a year to 12 times a year or so, depending on where you begin. Uh, so if somebody's uh, obese and has high cholesterol, high blood pressure, this uh, um, five-day five fasting mimicking diet, uh, um, um, they're, they're ideal. Uh, and there is one that is commercially available called Prolon by, by the Nutra. Um, I should say, I don't make a penny out of it, but uh, I am the founder of the company. Um, and, um, yeah, so I think those are, um, doing the, the fasting mimicking diet, um, you know, between tw- uh, twice a year to 12 times a year seems to be, um, uh, ideal. And the, um, the twice a year is for people that say somebody's 35 years old an athlete, uh, has a pescatarian diet, uh, yeah, probably sufficient to do it twice a year. Not very many people that are in that situation, mm-hmm. but, uh, but I think there are people, and uh, um, and also I think it's important to keep in mind that fasting and making diet um, should be done when you need to do it. You know, so uh, I I don't like it when people start uh, improvising and start saying, oh, you know, this is good for me, so I'm going to do it every every two weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, doesn't work like that. Eventually, you're going to see the problems of of that kind of behavior. So it's better to stick with uh, you know, if you have a problem, yeah, you might do it. Need to do it once a month. Uh, if you don't have a problem, you know, and everything is perfect, uh, don't have anything to to solve, then a couple times a year uh, should be fine. So more is not always better with that one. Um, okay, I want to dig into some of the things that you talked about. So first one being protein, because I think especially a lot of listeners to this podcast um, probably eat a lot more protein than you had recommended. And I'm just curious if you can talk a little bit about why, maybe some of the mechanisms about why high protein can have a negative impact, um, and if you make any changes for someone who is um, uh, like an athlete or doing a lot of weightlifting or um, things like that. Yeah, so um, the protein control, if you take people and um, and you remove the protein, you'll see the growth factors, particularly IGF-1, or keep uh, dropping down mm-hmm. and uh, um, and then together with IGF-1 uh, you'll see TOR and other uh, AKT etc they'll they'll be down regulated uh, and so those are um, those are the some of the genes that we now know to be pro-aging meaning that they promote accelerate the aging process and um, they also accelerate uh, cell growth and so they, they're very much associated with all kinds of cancers uh, and all kinds of other problems. Uh, so this is the reason to keep uh, protein low aging, but also cancer and other diseases. Um, it, it also, if you look at muscle synthesis, um, the, lots of data indicates that if you have 30 grams 
with with one meal um, and uh, and you do some muscle exercise, they're pretty much those thirty grams pretty much uh, maximize muscle synthesis. Mm -hmm. So the most you could do if you were a bodybuilder, based on those studies, would be twice a day, right? So to do two thirty grams, so sixty grams, mm -hmm. do two training uh, sessions, and that will maximize the the muscle building. Now you know, I think that. Uh, there, there can be um, for professional athletes, for example, there could be higher protein intake that might benefit some in some particular uh, situation. So, you know, I don't want to talk about, uh, you know, per performance, but certainly in general, uh, it doesn't look like based on, on human clinical studies, it doesn't look like, you know, having 150 grams of protein and all this protein craze, all these uh, commercials that you hear about protein, protein, protein. Um, is is helping anybody, um, and uh, at the same time, of course, there are people that are protein malnourished, and for those, you know, somebody that eats salad twice a day, mm -hmm. not gonna have any proteins or very little, mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, so those those uh, should then um, have uh, you know make sure that they move to the minimum, let's say 30, 35 uh, uh, grams a day of proteins. Uh, because otherwise, in the long run, they're probably going to have a, a mm -hmm. problem. So maybe kind of just making sure you get that 30 grams after the workout, but then not necessarily needing to get that much protein at every meal. Um, and I think the important distinction you made between performance and longevity, sometimes those do not always um, line up sort of the short-term performance goals versus long-term health. Yeah, so lots of athletes uh, uh, do very poorly longevity-wise, right? So... Um, if you keep pushing certain uh, pathways and, and, and certain genes, uh, you might end up with uh, lots of maybe temporary benefits, but then uh, lots of damage that, that you pay for for the rest of your life. You know, so um, I think it's uh, um, you got to do what you got to do, but uh, you know, always keep it in mind that um, that some of these uh, uh, excessive, uh, you know, whether it's diets or, or practices, uh, can can. Uh, have uh, lifelong effects. Mm -hmm. um, and then how do our protein needs change then as we age or so maybe even some of our other nutrient needs change as we get older? Yeah, so in a study that we published a few years ago, uh, we noticed that the, um, the, the people were 65 and younger um, reporting uh, uh, low protein intake. They, do, they did very, very, very well. And, um, but the people that were like 70, 80, 90 years old and they were reporting uh, low protein intake, very low protein intake, mm -hmm. they did not do so well. Um, and so um, we think that, and we also saw in mice, if you feed mice very low levels of proteins, if they're young mice, they're okay. Mm -hmm. if, you, okay. if you take all mice, you give very low level proteins, they struggle. And so this is suggesting that uh, as, as organisms get older, having a little bit of extra protein. It doesn't mean having twice as much, but certainly a little bit more protein, maybe going from the 0 0.35 to 0 0.4 grams per kilogram of body weight, uh, per pound of body weight per day. Uh, so that, that might be ideal. And, um, and uh, yeah, try to not, uh, as people get older, try not to lose muscle mass, uh, try to keep a, a steady uh, lean body mass weight. Um, most people don't, you know, so most elderly, they keep losing muscle mass and this uh, this is not good so um so the, the certainly in our cancer uh, trials we see that when you give them sufficient proteins and also you uh, combine this with some uh, muscle uh, exercise uh, uh, the lean body mass not only stays uh, uh, the same but it goes up mm -hmm. uh, so so yeah so, so this suggests that um you know the um the combination uh, is very important, even in the uh, in the older people. So have enough proteins, not excessive, and then do some uh, muscle uh, exercise. Okay, I'm curious too on your take on a ketogenic diet, since that's sort of a hot topic right now. And um, you had mentioned earlier some of the very low carb diets having maybe some promising short term outcomes but not necessarily long-term and kind of what you think the role might be for a ketogenic diet. Is it something that may be useful for short-term for certain medical conditions or um, for certain people? Is it useful 
um, for a longer term? Yeah, so the longer term, um, I would say that if somebody could, uh, the data indicates if somebody could be, uh, if it can be vegetable based, mm -hmm. this ketogenic diet can be mostly vegetable based, that seems to be fairly uh, positive, right? So if you have, a, let's say, a low carb uh, diet that is also vegan or, or, or vegetarian, mm -hmm. that seems to be okay. Um, the uh, the data for the uh, the regular diets, you know, lots of uh, sausages and eggs, et cetera, et cetera, and meat uh, uh, low carb that that's uh, consistently bad. Mm -hmm. uh, beside the, these beneficial effects, short term and like weight loss, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So then I think it, and I wouldn't do it. I mean, I don't think it's a good way to to uh, to get to where you need to get. I would rather do the, say, fasting making diet and, and then have the, this longevity, this pescatarian diet, eat a lot, et cetera, et cetera. There are better ways to get there. But, uh, you know, I, could, I, I have lots of colleagues, uh, doctor colleagues, that they say I had people with problems and I put them on a low-carb diet. Uh, I try to push the, the veg vegetarian or mm -hmm. vegan uh, food as much as possible. And my patients do very well. You know? mm -hmm. So... Yeah, so I think that it's possible that uh, somebody could use it for like two or three months, use the uh, low-carb uh, uh, ketogenic diet as vegan as possible, and then switch them back to a, uh, a higher-carb diet that is much more uh, uh, longevity um, uh, benefit. Okay. So maybe in the short term for certain medical conditions or... I mean, I've seen studies for things like obesity, metabolic syndrome, diabetes... To kind of get people on the right track and then over the longer term they you know once they're more metabolically healthy to adopt a little bit higher carb diet yeah, and, and even that is tricky right because you know for example uh there's lots of data now that's coming out of clinical trials suggesting what if you put somebody in i say 600 800 calorie diet for mm -hmm. three months right and the, and it looks great right the benefits seem to be great and they can reverse diabetes and this and that the problem is that you now, um, lots of data suggesting that you're going to slow down metabolism. Mm. And if you do that, then A, you put the people on a diet that they hate. Mm -hmm. Two, B, you now slow down their metabolism. And so you're really condemning these people to do even worse after that, right? Because eventually they're going to say, there is no way I'm going to continue this diet. Mm -hmm. B, now that I decided that I'm not going to continue this diet, my metabolism is slower than when I started. And so now I am condemned to regain all the weight and regain the problems, if not even worse, right? So mm -hmm. you need to be very careful with these uh, short-term intervention ideas, right? Because unless you're sure that this can have, uh, so unless you can make changes in people that you think they can keep for the rest of their lives, mm -hmm. uh, I think it's better to leave them alone. You know, we know that these yo-yo diets mm -hmm. uh, end up making it worse for the patients. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think it's better to, you know, let's say with the way we're using our fasting mimicking diet is in the following way, is to say, let's, if you take somebody obese, pre-diabetic, for example, uh, and we give them these five days of a vegan diet, low calorie, et cetera, et cetera, what we see is then, we basically say, in five days, you're going to go back to whatever it is that you always ate. We don't touch it. But then after three or four months and after two or three cycles, we start seeing people saying, you know what? You never taught me to change my diet, but I don't feel like eating mm. as I did before. Right? I don't feel the need to have as many uh, steaks as I had before or many sweets as I had before, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that that's really the future. Instead of imposing something so dramatic that people are going to hate it mm -hmm. and slowing their metabolism is uh, use these diets that seem to be accelerating the, the metabolism. They do the opposite right? because it's short and it doesn't have this effect, which may be epigenetic in slowing mm -hmm. down the metabolism. So give it to them. Don't overburden them. Then one month, two months later, when they're ready again, do it again, do it again. And then eventually they're the ones that are going to say, I feel better with this diet. I'm not mm -hmm. sure why, but I feel better. And I, in, my instinct bring me in that direction. I want to keep feeling like that, and I'm going to go slowly to a diet that I'm fine with and that nobody imposed on me. 
that makes me feel more like that. Mm -hmm. So the difference between the fasting mimicking and some of these more extreme diets, you think is mainly in the, the length that it's, you know, because I, I wonder about that. Obviously, fasting mimicking, it's just, it's short, but it still is a big change for people. But you think it's just the, the short length and then they allows them to kind of slowly shift and recover um, and change their eating preferences over time. Well, I mean, it, it, I mean of course, the fasting mimicking diet is a fasting mimicking diet. So mm -hmm. it mimics fasting. The other diets don't mimic fasting, right? The ketogenic diet, et cetera. Mm -hmm. uh, so they're very, very different. But, but I mean, a big, big difference is, in fact, the... Um, keep it like a medicine. You mm -hmm. take it for five days and then go continue to do mm -hmm. what makes you happy. Uh, so, yeah, don't have a long, low-calorie diet that is going to have these long-term effects on the metabolism. Mm -hmm. And also, don't disrupt my diet uh, because then it's just a matter of time before I rebel and, and go back to whatever it is that makes me happy. So uh, I think that, um, that uh, yeah, the idea is keep it short and, uh, and allow people to make the decision on their own to uh, move gradually towards, uh, you know, the longevity diet that I described earlier. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like, um, as you had mentioned earlier, you saw some of the negative impacts of that long-term, very low-calorie diet from um, Dr. Wolford. And eventually you came to this idea of the fasting mimicking diet. Can you just talk a little bit about kind of how it works um, from a biological perspective and what you think that it's doing to your body and your metabolism? Yeah, so from a biological perspective, the, the main thing is, uh, of course, we do lots of work with mice. Mm -hmm. So we have lots of uh, data, uh, molecular data, cellular data. Uh, so it, what it looks like it, it's doing is essentially shrinking the system and then in the shrinking process gets rid of uh, lots of things that are damaged, right? And it makes sense, right? You, you're going to get rid of cells and, and in intracellular component, you're going to grab first the ones that are damaged. Mm -hmm. and then, uh, but then once you shrunk and you're smaller now, a version of yourself, um, and the food comes back around, uh, you re-expand. And when you re-expand, you go and utilize the same mechanisms that you use when when you're first born, you know, so during embryonic development. And, uh, you know, and again, going back to what I said earlier about longevity programs, these are developmental programs. So you're not exploiting, again, 3 billion years of research and development, and you're allowing this very sophisticated system. For example, we, we, in a mouse, we can damage the pancreas. Uh, and then we start the fast-mimicking diet uh, refeeding programs, and you see that the pancreas, uh, is the cells of the pancreas are reprogrammed and go from not being able to make insulin to uh, start this, this, this gene expression that is normally only seen in mice that are just first born. Yeah. And then this gives rise to pancreas that, and beta cells that make normal levels of insulin. Right? So really, it's a, it's a self-repair regeneration mode. Uh, this seems to be happening uh, everywhere in the body. And it makes sense, right? Because mm -hmm. when you're starving... Uh, every single uh, cell of the body and every single organ is going to be affected. It's going to have to go into a saving mode. And then when you refeed, uh, you reverse all of this and you want to re-expand and go back to the, uh, the normal size, right? So, so now imagine like a, you know, a war prisoner that you know, some of them had BMI 14, right? So they, imagine somebody BMI 14 now make it to BMI 30, mm -hmm. right? In that process, now this person has doubled, or some of the organs may have tripled in size, and uh, so that means that most of the organ is brand new, right? Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. It was just built, and so that's a remarkable thing. It's so simple, and yet uh, uh, we talk about transplants, and we talk about you know uh, lots of uh, sophisticated regenerative intervention, and uh, almost nobody's talking about the body is able to regenerate almost anything. Uh, it's just not very easy to get it to do so. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. So you're actually seeing in your studies that the, the organs are shrinking over the course of this five-day period or so with the fasting mimicking, and then they're actually able to regenerate, get rid of the diseased cells, and regenerate with new healthy cells. Yeah, so we've seen this for multiple sclerosis mouse model. We've seen it for inflammatory bowel disease model. Uh, we've seen it for the, the diabetes type 1, diabetes type 2. Uh, so we, we keep seeing it for a lot of different systems. Mm -hmm. We really start thinking it must be 
uh, everywhere in the organ in the organism. And uh, and then in the clinical trial, we we do see lots of evidence for that. You know, when we did the human clinical trials, uh, whether it was multiple sclerosis or normal people, uh, we see the lowering of cholesterol or blood pressure, mm-hmm. lowering of fasting glucose, uh, inflammation goes back down, uh, leukocytosis goes back down. It, it, it really is hard to explain it in any other way than what we also see in the mouse, which is the body is able to use this moment to look for problems around and fix it, right? So mm-hmm. I always say, if you cut yourself within a couple of weeks, the repair is perfect yeah. and you go back to normal. How is it possible that inside of the body, we don't have any of this, right? So we just develop outside the uh, repair mechanism, mm-hmm. but intra- inside of the organism, we don't, we, we do nothing about insulin resistance, uh, liver, fatty liver, um, you know, inflammation, there is no way, right? So the, the, the body um, has these repair mechanisms, uh, we just need to learn how to, how to trigger them and trigger them in a way that that can uh, result in uh, in uh, you know repair and regeneration and and we believe also rejuvenation. Mm-hmm. Amazing. And do you see similar effects from doing a complete fast versus the fasting mimicking? And why did you go towards the fasting mimicking diet? No, the complete fast reminds me a lot uh, of calorie restriction, right? Good and bad. Right? So the complete fast, of course, is going to give you a lot of benefits, and it's going to give you a lot of problems. It's going to give you hypoglycemia. It's going to give you uh, possibly hypotension. Um, you know, so very common that we see people that were only fasting, they pass out. Mm-hmm. Also, in the latest study that we published, we compare were only fasting with the fasting mimicking diet, and we saw that it was something very interesting. The, when you do water only fasting, the gut became more leaky, right? So hmm. it, it increased together with the toxin that caused inflammatory bowel disease, they increased the leakiness. Yeah. And, yeah. and it probably is because the water only fasting gives the message to the gut to break down because there is no food. Hmm. With fasting making diet, you didn't see that and you actually saw less leakage and it's uh, probably due to the ingredients of the fasting-making diet, which are, con- we are, are contributing to the microbiota, to the uh, microbes in the gut. Uh, for example, lactobacillus, when we have to feed the bacteria, when we have. So it looks like the, these, these good bacteria are using the combination of the fasting with the content, with the vegan content, to give rise to this very protective uh, uh, bacteria population. Yeah, so... I mean, there's all kinds of reasons uh, to to not do water only fasting, but these are just some of them. And and you know, and I think it's just people need to understand: don't improvise. It's a mistake, and improvisation will get you the effects of calorie restriction. Lots of good and lots of bad. And uh, and people always talk about the good, and and of course, something bad happens. We don't find out about it until mm-hmm. maybe somebody dies or something like that. Uh, and in fact, there was one case in Italy: a lady. Um, uh, did uh, multiple sclerosis, did three weeks of water-only fasting, wow. and she ended up dead. Wow. Uh, you know, so what happened, nobody knows, but certainly very bad idea to improvise with multiple sclerosis and do this very long mm-hmm. uh, water-only fast, and uh, and the result uh, was was uh, tragic. So you want, you want just the right stimulus. Um, where would someone go if they maybe they have one of these conditions or maybe they just want, in general, to improve their longevity to do the... Prolon fast, fasting mimicking diet, or to learn more about how to do this. Yeah, I don't remember the site uh, name, but I think it's Prolon FMD. Mm-hmm. But if somebody put Prolon and, and the name L Nutra and U L dash N U T R A, they can find it. And uh, you know, again, um, I uh, uh, all my part, I, I, it goes to back to charity and to clinical trials and mm-hmm. to universities. You know, so I think people always complain about. Uh, why do the, the pharmaceutical world that they have so much money and the government gives so much money for pharmaceutical research mm-hmm. and for the nutrition we have no money right. and so this is also an opportunity for us to have some of the funds to fund lots of studies around the, the world that are focused on nutrition and are focused on some of these uh, uh, ideas that are uh, you know combining both technology and and tradition I think we need to uh, you know this so I'm just saying by buying Prolon, you also uh, you know, sponsor. It's going to a good cause. <laughs> yeah, sponsor the ability uh, that we and many others will have to to continue to research and and uh, you know and uh, and help people not just uh, prevent diseases but also you know we're about to publish a series of trials with cancer 
Uh, one of them is, uh, you know, the, the biggest one we've done so far, very effective. I cannot talk about it too much, but uh, certainly for breast cancer, women, mm-hmm. uh, it made a big difference. And um, and so um, I think we're going to still, you know, it's not going to be successful for everything, but certainly uh, it looks uh, very, very promising for lots of diseases. It's exciting. We look forward to reading all the upcoming research. Um, I know we have to wrap up. I just wanted to ask th- three quick questions that I ask everyone at the end of the podcast. You can give me your rapid fire answers if you'd like. So the first one is the three things that you do on a regular basis that have the biggest positive impact on your health. Yeah, so three things, certainly the pescatarian diet, uh, uh, you know, eating 12 hours a day. Mm-hmm. In eight, I, I do usually 8 a.m., 8 p.m. or so. And then um, I will say the fasting making diet, uh, you know, I do it a couple of times a year um, because of all the other things that I do. But, mm-hmm. uh, uh, yeah, people just have to find uh, the, the right level. Very good. So practicing what you preach. Um, the next question is one thing that you think would have a big impact on your health, but you have a hard time implementing it. Uh, not eating sweets, you know, and, uh, uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah, so I, I like to have carbs that are relatively uh, simple starches mm-hmm. and things like that. Yeah. I think if I, if I reduced it, uh, I, I would do better and maybe, um, uh, you know, more, um, exercise, more muscle training. I always say, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. But. I do a little bit of it, but not very much. So I wish I, I, I put some more effort into that, but I don't. Fair enough. Um, and then the last question is, what does a healthy life look like to you? A healthy? A healthy life, yeah. What does that look like to you? A healthy life? Um, you mean uh, in terms of longevity or? Yeah, how would you describe a healthy life? Well, a healthy life to me would be uh, a life where uh, – you know, you're fully functional, uh, you have to have no diseases, and you're not worried about any diseases. And so I think uh, you could be pre-diabetic and be, uh, somebody could say you're healthy, but you're not healthy. Uh, you know, if your fasting glucose is 115, uh, you get a problem. And so, yeah, I would say uh, it should be that you, you, you're fully functional, you're, you don't have any diseases, but there is also nothing there suggests that you will, you're about to get a disease. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for this conversation, and thank you for all the amazing research you do. I think um, it's wonderful how much you're sharing it with the world. I think so many times this cutting-edge research gets lost in scientific meetings and in debates amongst the world experts, so I really appreciate how much you're sharing that and um, bringing this information out to the world. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thanks. Hey there. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode. I got so much out of this conversation with Dr. Longo. I just wish we had more time to dig into the details of his research. Here are three of my biggest takeaways from our conversation. Number one of my takeaways was definitely Dr. Longo's recommendations about protein intake. When we look at athletic performance, we're often hearing recommendations about very high protein intake, sometimes upward of two grams per kilogram per day, which is much more than Dr. Longo recommends in this episode. It makes me ask the question, how much protein do we really need to continue to build muscle and promote strength without also promoting inflammation and risk of disease? Once again, these concepts of what's best for short-term performance and what's best for long-term longevity may be at odds with each other. I like Dr. Longo's approach for athletes of consuming most of their protein post-workout and shifting more of the protein intake to fresh, low-mercury-containing fish like salmon. My second takeaway is about the power of time-restricted feeding and the fasting-mimicking diet on cellular regeneration. I've talked with previous guests about the impact of time-restricted feeding on circadian rhythms and the gut microbiome from research out of Dr. Sachin Panda's lab, But the concept of cellular regeneration that Dr. Longo is observing with a fasting mimicking diet is fascinating, and it makes so much sense. It's also very interesting to me that this may be more beneficial than a straight water-only fast, and that the dosing of the fast, limiting it to five days every few months, is very important to get the desired response. You can definitely overdo it by doing too much. I've personally experimented with time-restricted feeding myself, as well as some longer fasts up to 24 hours, but I'm very excited to give the fasting-mimicking diet a try with the Prolon FMD protocol in the near future. 
I'm also interested in continuing to follow Dr. Longo's research and further applications of this diet for patients who may be suffering from various conditions from metabolic disease to autoimmunity. My final takeaway from this conversation was the concept that our dietary needs change over our lifespan. Dr. Longo discussed this, especially with reference to protein requirements, as we know that older individuals benefit from higher protein intake. But once again, this just reinforces the concept that nutrition is not one size fits all, and likely the ideal diet for each of us is slightly different and changes over the various stages of our lives. So I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did and were able to take away some points just like me. To make sure you never miss an episode and to receive exclusive content from me, head to my website, juliefouché.com and subscribe to my email list. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe and consider giving the podcast a five-star rating on iTunes. Also, don't forget to share your stories. If you or someone you know has used lifestyle to overcome a serious health challenge, please send me an email at info at juliefouché.com. I'll choose some of these inspiring stories to share here on future episodes. Don't forget you can train with me through Beyond the Whiteboard by visiting trainwithjuliefouché.com. Thank you again so much for listening, and I'll catch you next time on Pursuing Health. This episode is brought to you by ButcherBox. Now, I don't know about you, but over here in Cleveland, I am starting to get very excited about summertime, which means it's almost time for one of my favorite things, grilling season. Growing up, my family had a cottage in northern Michigan, and some of my fondest memories are evenings gathering with friends and family on the porch for a big barbecue after a long day of boating, swimming, and tubing on the lake. The more I learn about health, the more I've come to believe that it matters so much where our food comes from, and particularly when it comes to meat. I believe that meat can have a place in a well-rounded diet, but there's a huge difference when it comes to animals that are raised in feedlots and that are fed primarily corn and soy and routinely given growth hormones and antibiotics versus those that are responsibly raised, fed their natural diet, and never given growth hormones or antibiotics. High-quality meat like this is hard to come by, but ButcherBox makes it super easy by delivering 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage breed pork, and wild Alaskan sockeye salmon directly to your doorstep. All of their products are humanely raised and never, ever given antibiotics or hormones. This gives me a lot of peace of mind, knowing that I can trust my meat and seafood is the highest quality out there and will taste amazing. Plus, they offer free shipping anywhere in the contiguous 48 United States. How amazing is that? So after three years of living in our house, my husband Danny and I are super excited to finally be finishing off our tiny little backyard this spring, and I can't wait to fire up our grill and enjoy our butcher box meats with tons of vegetables from our local CSA. And now you can join us because ButcherBox is extending an awesome offer for Pursuing Health listeners. $20 off plus an ultimate barbecue bundle for free with your first box. Now the bundle includes two New York strip steaks, baby back ribs, as well as two pounds of ground beef, which is a $59 value. Supplies are limited though, so you'll want to order now to take advantage of this offer. You can go right to butcherbox.com forward slash Julie to place your order. Once again, that's $20 off plus the ultimate barbecue bundle, two strip steaks, baby back ribs, and two pounds of ground beef for free with your first box by going to butcherbox.com forward slash Julie. If you're looking forward to hosting your first backyard barbecue of the season as much as I am, hopefully you'll check this out. Have you tried out Thrive Market yet? If not, you are definitely missing out. What are you waiting for? Thrive Market is an online marketplace on a mission to make healthy living easy and affordable for everyone. It allows you to shop for thousands of the best-selling non-GMO foods and natural products, always at 25 to 50% below retail prices. But as a Pursuing Health listener, you'll receive an additional 25% off your first purchase, plus a free 30-day trial if you visit www.thrivemarket.com forward slash ph. My husband Danny and I shop for our staple grocery items using Thrive Market. Things like nut butters, cooking oils, snacks, dressings, coffee and tea, personal care products, eco-friendly cleaning supplies, and non-toxic beauty products. It has helped us to stay on track with our busy schedules during medical training, and we know all their products are coming from a curated list that we can trust. 
So no matter what you're looking for, whether it's paleo, vegan, ketogenic, gluten-free, non-GMO, fair trade certified, or any of 80 plus other types of products, you can easily find them on the Thrive Market platform at prices 25 to 50% below retail. Even better, these items are shipped straight to your doorstep so you don't have to worry about the time or hassle of grocery shopping. Thrive Market's mission is to make healthy living easy and approachable to everyone, and this aligns perfectly with my own personal mission and that of pursuing health. Because it has been such a lifesaver for me, I wanted to share the benefits of Thrive Market with all of you, and they've responded with an amazing offer. So head to www.thrivemarket.com forward slash ph to receive 25% off your first purchase plus a free 30-day trial. Again, this is on top of their already 25 to 50% below retail prices. So why not try it out and do your grocery shopping from home this week? I hope you can take advantage of this offer and enjoy their service as much as I have. Once again, that website is thrivemarket.com forward slash ph to learn more. No discount code is necessary. Just shop around and the discount will be applied at checkout. (music) 